We continue on in the uh, Judges series, diving into the story of Gideon, which we're not going to try to cover in one sermon. This one is, I put Gideon part one, uh, the making of a biblical hero. Uh, The history of Gideon actually uh, is given more space in God's record of judges than any other judge. He encompasses the most uh, space. And he's an interesting person because we encounter him threshing wheat in a wine press, hiding it from the marauding Midianites, the ones that they fear, the ones that have just sacked Israel, to ultimately seeing him lead Israel in a complete and crushing victory over those destroyers. So what we watch is we watch a scared and hiding man become the hero and leader God desires to accomplish God's purpose. His story is involved. Uh, As we look at these stories, Scripture never shields us in that way from their faults. He stumbles along the way. Uh, He has a huge error at the end of life. But what we see is how God takes a nobody and uses him to be God's somebody. We watch Gideon overcome quite a few issues. And so as we look at the first part of the story, as we see God make him into that biblical hero, we're going to see key hurdles that he has to overcome. Now, as we dive into the details of the story covering chapter 6, it's helpful to understand where we are. Time-wise, we're around 1169 uh, B.C., and that's just moving our way uh, through the history from Deborah and Barak and then the time uh, 40 years after that. It's helpful to understand a little bit of the history. As, as remember with Barak and Deborah, Egypt has been moving up and down, up and down. They stop for a while, then they continue again. Uh, but by 1190 B.C., that was the last campaign that took place in and went through Canaan. So Egypt is done moving forward for a period of time. They're a little bit weak. And so the situation is now ripe for another group to swoop in and fully oppress the promised land. And that oppression comes from the Midianites along with the Amalekites and then nomads from the Syrian desert. Those are the children of the east. The location in question is also interesting because it's the Esdralon Plain, which is, you'll hear, the Jezreel Valley. And the reason that's important is that's the same place that Barak and Deborah were fighting over 40-some years prior. This is the best land for growing grain, and the Midianites are nomads. They're, They're moving around, and they were interested in food crops. So if you take Israel, this is one of the prime areas to get food crops in. And so what was fought for against um, Jabin is now fought again because the Midianites are coming in. They would move in at harvest time and they would consume everything with their goods and their people and then just move and they move from the north all the way down south to Gaza is how they would run through the land, making kind of a circle as they moved around. Most of the persecution, the whole story we're reading takes place right here in this Jezreel Valley. And this is the heart of the persecution because this is where most of the goods are. The oppression is only at seven years. It seems somewhat short, but the oppression is so heavy and so humiliating that it points to how weak Israel is. It points to uh, how disunified they are because they are just overrun by people that just come in and take completely over. And that's what I want us to look at, a little closer look is at the scenario. And this is is what Theron just read. So I'm not going to reread those, 
but I'm going to kind of highlight a little bit of what's taking place. Uh, the Midianites and their coalition come swarming in at harvest time with all of their livestock, families, and goods. This is not just an army that's walking in. This is their whole population that's moving in and taking over. They come and take everything, most likely gaining the upper hand because they have superior and more weapons. They are better fighters. If you're looking at it from a physical standpoint, their whole existence is taking, is robbing, it's moving around. They're not, they're not farming. They're just harvesting, if that makes sense. They're just coming in to take and then it's the first full-scale deployment of camels. Uh, in history, this is considered the first time camels were used in this way. And you might think, what's the difference between a donkey and a camel? What, what's, how does this give such an advantage? Uh, the camel was able to carry up to 400 pounds. So you imagine if you're, if you're stealing the harvest and stealing the grain, you have a beast that can carry it. Uh, they we're able to travel 28 miles in a day. Now, in our modern mind, that seems like nothing. But in the ancient mind, that was quite a bit of distance. That's when they're packed down. If a camel only has its rider, it can move at the speed of almost 100 miles in a day. And I want you to, to escape the modern mind and think about that. Typically, you're moving at 20, 25 miles in a day as you're working around. And you have an enemy that if they wanted to put their soldiers up front on camels, they can move at four times the normal speed that someone is used to. And so you think about them coming in as grasshoppers. It's almost like they come out of nowhere and then they're infesting everything that's there. And we have that with the cicadas. They come up every year. And one time you can walk through your yard without eating bugs. And then the next day you're eating bugs, right? You're walking through. They're fighting around. That's how it felt to them. To Israel, they just swoop in with this mighty advantage. And so they appear and they just overrun Israel and couple that with being better fighters or more, uh, or more accustomed to this kind of take and go flow and better weapons. Well, you have Israel at their mercy. The Israelites are doing what they normally do. They work and they plant their land. The Midianites are not present. These are not an occupying force. You can imagine after the first wave of losses, though, you're looking over your shoulder. You're wondering if they're coming back. And then after seven years of them returning, all you're thinking about is we're working hard. And mind you, as they take everything, the Midianites aren't leaving behind the grain for the next year. They're not leaving behind the seed. So if Israel is not hiding that seed or saving it, as the Midianites keep running through, they're depleting the land, not only with what they could eat off of, but what they could replant. And so you're in a, on a downward cycle that's, to some extent, unsustainable even for the Midianites. But there they are coming in, destroying season after season. And so I want you to think about how you feel in Israel. You're hungry. There are hungry people. Is it just that you can't get your favorite meal? It's that you don't get a meal. Starvation was probably there. You are humiliated. You're crushed by your defenselessness. You are home, and other occupying force comes in, takes everything you own, and they would have taken their livestock as well. The Midianites had a lot of livestock. You go back to when Moses conquers there, going into the promised land, they get its innumerable amount of animals from them. And so they are, they are um, herders and shepherds that bring in their, their, their flocks. They're going to take the flocks that Israel has as well. And so they are completely crushed during this time. And then Israel, it says, cried out to the Lord. 
And I'm going to mention this later on, but crying for help from God, which we see from politicians and people, don't we? When life knocks your knees out from underneath you, especially on a national scale, and we can remember September 11th, and we have all of our politicians uh, praying, calling out to God. They don't believe in God. They publicly said they don't want anything to do with God. But when disaster strikes, we will cry to God. But a cry to God is not a call of repentance or even acknowledgement of sin. And so as you see this, and there's a unique thing that transpires, and Theron read this part as well, uh, God hears their cry. Of course, he hears everything. But what's interesting is he sends a prophet to explain to them that they need to repent, basically. He sends an unnamed prophet to clearly and bluntly explain the situation. <clears throat> That's verses 6, 7 through 10. And again, Theron read this, but I, I want to kind of recap it again. This prophet comes and says, God rescued you from Egypt. God gave you this land. God gave you commands and you have broken them. How does it end? Ye have not obeyed my voice. You can cry to God for help. And that's what Israel is doing. But they're not acknowledging any sin or any wrong as they do this. Uh, I was reading a commentator. How did he get this message out? This prophet probably went from community to community, and I put in parentheses, including the one Gideon lived in, because Gideon's first response to God ignores what the prophet says. And he goes to explain the reality of their situation. He's making clear the reason for the hardship and the need to do more than cry for help. <coughs> they needed to repent. I put here as a few reminders, and I think it's helpful as we look at Gideon's life. It's key to remember that there's a difference in crying for help and actually repenting of sin. You can hate how the circumstances are, but you can also not learn from those circumstances and just do what you want. I put when things get tough, we often cry to God, but we rarely see it as a chance to change. We rarely see it as a chance to repent. We rarely see it as a chance for revival. And I'm not saying, and I want to be very careful, that if something's going wrong in your life, that suddenly we start acting like the Pharisees in John 9 and start saying, what did this guy do wrong that he was born blind? What did his parents do wrong? That's not what this is about. What it is about, though, is recognizing and acknowledging the reality that sin has consequences and that there is a need to change and there is a need to repent. It's key to remember what God has done. That prophet came to remind them of what God has done. <coughs> Don't we oftentimes, when we face certain hardships, forget we're very selective in our memory, aren't we? We will remember what is taking place. We will remember that things are not the way we want them to be. We will remember that this is not how I want things to happen. We will forget that God has redeemed us from eternity in hell. We'll forget that he came and died on the cross for our sins. We will love to throw out, well, I, I, he's a, he is a God of love. He's shown that love on the cross. He made it very clear. We forget what God has done. It's key to remember what God's done. What did he do for Israel? He brought them out of Egypt. He freed them from bondage. He gave them the promised land, and he gave clear commands and consequences. Everything that's unfolded to them is right in the Pentateuch that it would take place. God hasn't deviated from the plan he gave. He hasn't deviated from his word at all. And that part of the message, as I mentioned, is very poignant when you look at Gideon's complaint to God when God comes to call at first, because Gideon questions God's working in Israel as he focuses on his view of life, <clears throat> which leads us to the first hurdle 
that Gideon will need to overcome to be a true biblical hero. And as we walk through these, I hope that we'll apply these to our lives, that we'll understand that as his children, we're called to overcome the same things, and that we're also called to be the Gideons, to be the hero. And we think of the hero in a certain way with a cape and flying and shooting lasers out of their eyes. But we want to be the biblical hero that accomplishes what God wants done. And the first hurdle that Gideon has is to overcome his circumstances. Look at Judges 6, 11 through 24, and I'll read those. It says, And there came an angel of the Lord. By the way, this is a theophany. The Lord in there, it's all caps. In other words, it's an angel of Yahweh. It becomes clear that this is God himself. And sat under an oak, which was in Ophrah, that pertained unto Joash the Bezerite. And his son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. In other words, when you're threshing grain, you want to be in the open where the wind can blow the chaff away and the grain falls. If you're doing it in a wine press, there's no breeze. You're throwing it up for no purpose almost. In other words, it's the opposite of where you should be to handle grain. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said unto him, the Lord, again Yahweh, is with thee, thy mighty man of valor. And Gideon said unto him, O my Lord, If, notice that, if the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? And where be all his miracles, which our fathers told us of, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord hath forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. And don't miss what he's saying. It's God's fault, is what he's saying. You're with us? God's with us is is, is his complaint? Then why are we suffering? Then why did this happen? What's taking place? Where are God's miracles is what Gideon is in some sense belligerently saying. And the Lord looked upon him and said, Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have not I sent thee? And he said unto him, O my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said unto him, Surely I will be with thee. And thou shalt smite the Midianites as one man. And he said unto him, If now I have found grace in thy sight, in other words, questioning again what God has just told him, If now I have found grace in thy sight, then show me a sign that thou talkest with me. Depart not hence, I pray thee, until I come unto thee, and bring forth my present, and set it before thee. And he said, I will tarry until thou come again." And the word present is actually a great translation of the Hebrew word there. It's not a sacrifice. It is a gift. He's not making an offering. He's bringing a present. Literally exactly what it says there. And Gideon went in and made ready a kid and unleavened cakes of an ephah of flour. By the way, that's 40 pounds of grain that he's using. The flesh he put in a basket and he put the broth in a pot and brought it out unto him under the oak and presented it. And the angel of God said unto him, Take the flesh and the unleavened cakes and lay them upon this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. In other words, he should be cluing in that this isn't the normal way you participate in a meal at all. Then the angel of the Lord put forth the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the flesh and the unleavened cakes. And there rose up fire out of the rock and consumed the flesh and the unleavened cakes. Then the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. And when Gideon perceived that he was an angel of the Lord, Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for because I have seen an angel of the Lord face to face. In other words, he's saying, I'm about to die. 
which would be correct if you're reading Exodus, understanding that no one can survive coming into the presence of God in that way. He is grasping a little bit of his dirtiness and God's holiness in that moment. And the Lord said unto him, Peace be unto thee, fear not, thou shalt not die. Then Gideon built an altar there unto the Lord and called it Jehovah Shalom. Unto this day it is yet an Ophrah of the Abiezrites. What's taking place? And I, I like reading through scripture. We need to hear it in God's words, how this unfolds. <coughs> Gideon is leaving or he's living the life of the oppressed. Understand where he is focused in. Here is a man working the grain in the worst of places, attempting to get enough food hidden away before the Midianites and company show up. And into this scene of, let's be honest, complete defeat. You're doing grain in a wine press. You're in the hills when you should be on the plain. You are hiding out because you're just trying to get enough for your family to survive. Into this scene comes the angel of the Lord. Though Gideon is not completely sure. There's a hint, but he's not positive. The visitor states boldly that Yahweh is with Gideon, a statement that Gideon attempts to refute based on his circumstances of oppression. And he goes so far as to misidentify God. He mischaracterizes God. He says to God, you are not faithful, is what he's saying. You haven't been here. Where are you? And I want us to hear ourselves in that statement. How many times have we walked into a situation where our response to God, who is ever faithful and has never failed us, and we say to God, where are you? And understand the belligerence in that statement as we go to the Almighty God and ask him, where are you? Well, he's there. He's not the one that leaves. And I put here, as he casts doubt on God's faithfulness, basically, and we need to see it in light of what it is, Gideon ignored the truth. He ignored the truth. Who gave the truth? Well, actually, it was recently given by an unnamed prophet who said, God rescued you from, from God rescued you from Egypt. And think about it. What does Gideon reference when he complains to God? I've heard about how you rescued us from Egypt. Our fathers have said that. Who is he referencing? Who just shared that note? An unnamed prophet did. Is it God rescued you? God gave you the land. God did all this stuff, and then you disobeyed God. And his first response to somebody is to just ignore that truth completely. He walked away from what the prophet had said. And by the way, what the prophet said was God's word. And then in your mind, stop for a second and see how you respond to life sometimes. And do you ignore truth? As you approach life and as the circumstances, and I'm not trying to belittle the circumstances because Gideon is oppressed beyond belief. We have not faced oppression like this. We have not been working and sowing and trying to reap and trying to make sure we can just feed our family because someone's going to come in and pillage everything we own and there's no recourse at all for us. We've not faced that amount of hardship. But recognize what he did as he started out. He ignored God's word. And here's the truth of God's word. God remains true. Israel has been unfaithful. But that reality was passed over in Gideon's mind because Gideon saw his circumstance, Israel's plight, from his own perspective, not God's perspective. He looked at what had unfolded and deduced that God had deserted his people. 
And we have to, in our mind, wonder, do we do the same? As we look at circumstances, as we see it, and oftentimes from a temporal viewpoint, are we looking and saying, well, there's the evidence God has deserted us instead of acknowledging that God's people had deserted him. See, he failed to bring the consequences of sin, the reality of it, into his reasoning. And I want you to understand and I want you to feel the weight of his response, because I know when I read it over, I tend to gloss over this kind of pushback. Like, I'm a skeptical person, so I can imagine there I am, threshing grain in the wine press, and somebody comes that definitely weird, but not sure exactly who they are, and they tell me, God is with you, and I'm going to be with you, and you're going to defeat the Midianites. And I'm going to be like, you're crazy. So I, I see why this happens but I don't want to miss the, the weight of what he's saying or the sin that's involved in it. His response warranted immediate correction and punishment by God. There was no doubt that that response to God warranted him being lit up on fire. But God in his abundant mercy does not strike him dead on the spot. Instead, God in his perfect will and timing says, go defeat the Midianites. I, God, have sent you. His response to a belligerent, frail servant is to say, go ahead, I'm, I'm going to send you out. And then Gideon responds with his excuses, which, by the way, how low is his dad in Manasseh? He's the one with the altar to Baal. He's the one with the Asherah poles. He's the one that tells the community, you're not going to kill my son. If you try, I'll kill you, basically, at the end. And everyone listens to him. He's not that weak. But he's found a way to position himself to say, I'm not ready. I'm not prepared. I don't have all the resources that everyone else would have. In other words, he's finding excuses for not doing what God says. And then God says something to Gideon's, I don't have. He says, I will be with you. You don't have. And God says, but I'm there with you. And that answers every I don't have that you can come up with in life. And then, and I want you to understand this, this is the truth that Gideon has just denied. God reminded him of the fact that I'm with you. I will be with you as you do this. And that Gideon would conquer the Midianites. The almighty God of the universe, a truth that's slowly breaking into Gideon's mind, has personally told Gideon that he would be victorious with God's direct hand alongside of him. And how does Gideon respond? Well, he inquired about proof. And we all love proof, don't we? I'll be the first one to tell you, I'm not going to believe it unless I see it with my own eyes. But here's the sad truth to that need for proof. We apply that same thing to God's unfailing promises and his word. <clears throat> I'm saying that on purpose because we have no right to go to God and tell him to prove his love. To tell him to prove his promises. <clears throat> he doesn't have to prove his promises. He is his promise. He is love. There's nothing more to prove at all. We don't go to God and say, well, <coughs> you prove what you say in your word. No, what we do is believe what he said in his word. That's it. That's where the line is supposed to be drawn. But Gideon goes and he, he petitions God to prove that he is God. And so he does some things now. And I want you to realize he's understanding what's taking place. He makes a meal, but this is no ordinary meal. I put here, Gideon prepared and sacrificed much. Forty pounds of hard work for grain along with the lamb. <clears throat> and mind you, the Midianites have taken their livestock with them as well. 
So what he's giving would have gone a long way in feeding his family, would have been hard work for. I don't want you to miss this, that when Gideon brought to the table was not a meal that two people would eat together, not even remotely close. This is a, a feast that would feed multiples of people, would have fed his family for a while. And the volume of the present shows that, that Gideon is, is starting to see who is in front of him. He's starting to recognize that this is not a human being, that this is not, this is not an ordinary circumstance. But he also has enough belligerence, I call it, to request much. He said to God, I want you to validate your message, which God had directly given to him. And I put here, how guilty are we of the same demand for proof from the Almighty God about what he has promised and said? How many times does our heart shift from believing God to telling God what to do? I want you to recognize how ridiculous it is to tell God what to do. Gideon actually behaves in a ridiculous way throughout the story. He struggles with his trust of God. And what he's saying when he doesn't trust God is that he doesn't trust God. It's distrust. It's not just doubt. It's actually saying to God, you're not faithful or you're not true. How guilty are we? And I put here in my notes, we resemble Gideon in his frailty more than we would like to see. All of us want to break the jar and conquer the Midianites, but most of us won't see the fact that when we were walking and we've walked through these circumstances, we do the same that he has done. And just because God doesn't punish him in the immediate for what he does, doesn't mean God put a stamp of approval on what he's done. We're going to talk about the fleece at the end. That is not something God approved at all. That was God's mercy and grace to Gideon yet again. And the whole experiment's a big lie because he says, do this and I'll believe you. And then he says, do it again, but flip it. So I want you to see that God's not approving what Gideon's done. He's just showing grace and mercy. So God, again, mercifully fulfills Gideon's request. He touches the meat with his staff, but you know where the fire comes from? The rock. It's not like he had a magic staff. He just touched the meat, and then the rock burns everything up. He's poured the broth out. In other words, he he just, when I say blew his mind, and it consumes Gideon's gift, and then he disappears. Now, Gideon does what he should do here. He's beside himself. His fear is ignited. I put he ignited his fear. Gideon now sees with clarity to whom he has been speaking. And I want you to get this. Gideon questioned God's faithfulness to God's face. That should strike terror in your heart. Gideon has been a disrespectful, belligerent human being. He has now seen startling proof of who God is, and he correctly wonders if he should still be alive. Scripture says he shouldn't be. That if you're going to see God in this way, that you won't live. Uh, Samson's dad feels the same way when he starts recognizing it. And there's a part of him that kind of flounders in that. And then you see the wife have a little bit more common sense and say, if he's going to kill us, we'd already be dead. And I appreciate her common sense there. Gideon's by himself and he's thinking, I should be dead. And I want you to realize something. That fear is most definitely the appropriate response here. He should fear that he would die. Because he should be. You see, because it actually highlights or the reality of God's holiness. It is a good and biblical response to what Gideon has encountered. And let's be honest, we definitely need more of that today 
as we have become quite presumptuous in our demeanor toward the almighty, most holy God. When Isaiah confronts the holy God, what does he say? I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. He's filthy. The only time he starts speaking is when God puts a coal to his lips, and then he is prepared to serve. Gideon responded correctly. He was supposed to fear his life. He was supposed to recognize what he had been saying and to whom he has been saying it. Yet notice who God is in that moment. He is, again, gracious and merciful. He is the God of peace. He speaks directly to Gideon. (coughs) It doesn't say that he reappeared in person. It says that he speaks to Gideon. He talks to him directly and says, don't worry, you're not going to die. And then all of that, despite the attitude and the actions of a very frail servant, He is the God who uniquely deserves worship, which now Gideon correctly does. And I want you to see as Gideon overcomes his circumstances, he lands on worship. He calls God Jehovah Shalom, which is the God of peace. That's what that means there. I put as an action step, overcoming your circumstances involves a proper view of God. Seeing him correctly, which I will always say to see God correctly means to see him biblically. Because my most hated phrase is when someone says, well, I see this, or I think God does that. It doesn't really matter what you think. Are you seeing him biblically? So if you're going to see God correctly, you're going to see him biblically, and then you have to see life from his viewpoint. It involves trusting his word, recognizing that he is truth and reality, that his promises are sure. And I want to put this extra note in there. When you do not see things from his viewpoint, when you aren't seeing that his promises are sure, recognize something, not that God is off, but that you're off. When you cannot see God in his faithfulness and see God in his truth and to see God in his promises, and you have to question God about everything, then understand this, your perspective is off. God is not changing here, but you most definitely need to. To overcome your circumstances, to have enough discernment to recognize when we're wandering off from what we need to be. It involves responding appropriately to who God is, to his awe-inspiring holiness, and fearing him as we should, while knowing his unfathomable grace and mercy. Because what you're going to see woven through the whole story of Gideon is grace and mercy over and over and over again. And then at the end, I put it involves worship of him. And so the question for us is, are we truly overcoming our circumstances? Are you really rising above this life as a believer? Well, if you are, then you're doing what Gideon needed to do. He ultimately did. And then I love the next part. He's immediately prodded to overcome his culture. Look at the the next text, uh, 25, as we read through 32. (coughs) And notice the timing. (coughs) Excuse me. And it came to pass the same night. And if you highlight in your Bible, highlight that. There's zero time that's given here. So God has confronted him. He's overcome his circumstances. He's built an altar to God. He's worshiped God right there at the wine press, right there in Ophrah, right there amongst the the people. But he's hiding in the mountains. Here is Gideon doing what I think he typically does. We'll talk about this. I think he's known to be a God follower in his community. And then God says immediately... Now, that same night, you're done building that altar, and guess what? He gets an assignment to do another one. The same night that the Lord said unto him, Take the father's young bullock, 
even the second bullock of seven years old, and throw down the altar of Baal that thy father hath, and cut down the grove that is by it. And build an altar unto the Lord thy God upon the top of this rock in the ordered place, and take the second bullock, and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the grove (coughs) which thou shalt cut down. Then Gideon took ten of his servants, and did as the Lord had said unto him. And so it was, because he feared his father's household and the men of the city, that he could not do it by day, which he couldn't have. He's not being a coward. They would have never let him finish. That he did it by night. And when the men of the city arose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was cast down, and the grove was cut down that was by it, and the second bullock was offered upon the altar that was built. And again, remember, there's not a ton of livestock around in Israel at this moment. He has now offered a lamb, and now he's killing the bull, which I think in some ways might have been the community bull that is covered by the dad and might have been set aside for worship of Baal. So <clears throat> he, is, he is making a mess of their, uh, their life in that moment. And so in the minute they rose early and they saw the altar was cast down, the groves cut down, and the second bullock was offered upon the altar that was built. And they said one to another, who hath done this thing? And when they inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, hath done this thing. In other words, the obvious answer is going to be Gideon. Then the men of the city said unto Joash, bring out thy son that he may die, because he hath cast down the altar of Baal, and because he hath cut down the grove that was by it. And Joash said unto all that stood against him, will ye plead for Baal? Will ye save him? He that will plead for him, let him be put to death, whilst it is yet morning. In other words, if you try to kill my son because he knocked down the altar of Baal, I'm going to kill you. You die. And then he makes the challenge. He says this, if he, talking about Baal, be a god, let him plead for himself, because one hath cast down his altar. Therefore, on that day, he called him Jerubbaal, saying, let Baal plead against him, because he hath thrown down his altar. In other words, a dad steps in for his son. Don't forget, the offering to Baal is on Joash's property. He's the one that owns, quote-unquote, that place. But when it came time to, to kill a son or to continue an idol worship, he decided to side with his son. And he says, well, if Baal's upset, he'll kill him. If Baal's real, he'll take care of him. Now, I want to give you a little bit of a note, <clears throat> because sometimes we see our Sunday school picture, and we see a little box, and we think it's easy to knock down. Uh, in Migadu, they uncovered archaeologically one of the altars to Baal. It was 25 feet across, four and a half feet tall, made of stones cemented together by mud. In other words, an altar to Baal was no small little box stacked up that you could knock down with ease. It was quite the undertaking. It would take 10 guys the night to accomplish this demolishment. And then along with that, they had to rebuild an altar to the Lord. The bull to do the work and be sacrificed would have been a great and direct insult to Baal. His dad, if you remember the hierarchy, right? Baal is the one worshipped. El is the dad. Um, the head god was often depicted as a bull, and it was a sacred animal of that worship. There was no turning back. That's what I want you to see from this act. What does Gideon do? He takes a bull, which is sacred to Baal worship. One commentator said, very specific, take the second bullock, to do this work of seven years old. And that the idea is there's a good chance that this bull was set aside to be sacrificed to Baal. Sacred animal, possibly given to Baal. And so what does he do? He takes the sacred bull and he knocks the altar down. He then builds a new altar from the materials from the broken down altar. He then kills the bull that would have been sacred to Baal worship. And he uses the Asherah poles, the consort, remember the the goddesses, the the wicked goddesses that were there. When you see Baal worship, you see these poles put up. 
worshiping, and, and most likely had disgusting images carved into them. He cuts that up and uses those poles to light the fire to offer the Baal, uh, offer the bull that was supposedly given to Baal. And I put here, it would not have been easy, but it was necessary. And I'll mention this a little bit later, but Gideon most likely was known as the God worshiper in his community, the Yahweh worshiper. But what he does now is he makes a clear demarcation. I put, he disconnected from his world's idolatry. He made a very clear distinction between what they do and what he does. It was important. God doesn't want to work with someone associated with idol worship. There was no room for compromise here. It's obvious, as I said, that he was the one loyal to Yahweh. It doesn't take him long to make sure he's the guilty party. He was the easiest one to accuse. Yet in that act, he declared his faith in a way that they could no longer ignore it. Because he said something, he says, I am purely and completely for Yahweh, the one true God. It's important in Gideon's life that there's no syncretism, and that means a mixing of his faith. There was no tolerance of idolatry or an attempt to make it all work together. This act by Gideon stated that his religion would be pure and undefiled. And I'm going to make the point for us, and I hope you're picking up on it as we get there, because we most desperately need to do this in our time. To be God's hero requires us to overcome our culture, and to overcome our culture means we do not attempt to make pure worship of the one true God fit any polluted culture or cultural practices, no matter how in vogue they may be. We must never syncretize our faith. I've shared this story before, but it fits perfectly. There was a church used to be grounded in D.C. that chose to go to a woke, vile protest on Sunday in lieu of worship, condemned other churches for worshiping on Sunday, yet broke the law of the land to do what the law the land wanted to do because the mayor of D.C., and if you're ever following the mayor of D.C. as a Christian, well... The history isn't that great. Now, I don't know if we'll ever get one that's decent, but to follow them, and I, I want us to see something here. This church used to be grounded, but got caught up in the idolatry that was permeating the land. We must never syncretize our faith. I have an example from the mission field. I travel uh, a lot to Nicaragua. I've been over most of the country, work heavily with the Mesquite people. <laughs> and as I'm floating down the Rio Coco, and coming into village after village, every village has a Monravian church. And so I see these churches, they're dead. Um, there's no life. There's no gospel there anymore. But then I read the history of the Monravian church, and it's an amazing history. A hundred years ago, biblically sound and true to the gospel. Uh, some of the most, um, I, there, was, there was Monravian missionaries that sold themselves into slavery in the Caribbean so that they could go reach other slaves with the gospel because no one would let you on the plantation unless you were a slave or the owner. They weren't the owner, so they became the slave. I share that because Monravian missionaries from centuries ago, all the way up even to 100 years ago, were biblically sound and true to the gospel. They infiltrated the Mesquite people in an astounding way. Every small village, whether there's 400 people or 1,500 people or 5,000 people, has a church that's there, but there's no truth left there at all. 
They adopted the destructive lies of the Catholic Church. They wove in animistic beliefs from the past and as an added bonus, punished those who left the church. It was light punishment, but you don't get buried on the burial plot. You get some ostracization from the community. In other words, they syncretized their faith and died. The church as a whole in the USA is not doing any better. So many are sprinting to be the first to participate in cultural norms. You would think there's prize money for leading the charge. That's how active they are in running after it. It's foolish, even if you're not a believer, to be that quick. And they are believers, and they're chasing it like it's something they need to do. And I put here, just pause and analyze your thinking. How have you accommodated this wicked world with a casual or slight compromise of your faith, even when you don't realize it's a compromise? I put here, I would love to ask if we are truly overcoming our culture, but I already know the answer. I'm not asking that question because we, as a church in the United States, have failed this miserably. We have grabbed this culture and made their worship part of ours. We have adapted our worship to fit what the world says is okay. We have adjusted what God's word has said so that we don't step on somebody's toes. We've done everything we can to twist and turn it. See, God gave Gideon a separation task to be accomplished, and Gideon did it. And through his purity... Though, again, I want to tell you, he messes this up at the end of his life. He becomes the instrument to dethrone Baal. His dad, who has an altar on his property, protects Gideon, saying, let Baal kill him if Baal is real. That's a charge, right? If Baal's real, he'll kill Gideon. Then Gideon's alive. What does the community start realizing? Baal's not real. Gideon becomes the Baal fighter who wins against the gods. You see what God is doing in his life? He is setting up Gideon to be the guy that's going to lead the charge that goes forward. But it required him to overcome his culture. And I'm saying this because right away you think, yeah, he stopped worshiping. He wasn't worshiping idols. The implication from everything we see in the story is that he's the only guy that would worship Yahweh. And he's the only guy in their community who's going to be willing to tear down this altar. And so he's already known as a believer. Now he does something that says, I will not mix these two together. And again, I'm not pushing being obnoxious and being foolish. I'm saying that we need to overcome our culture. That we have worked way too hard to make sure our culture is happy with our worship. That we make sure our worship of the one true God fits the lies of these worlds. No, what we need to do is stick to what God says and follow through. Gideon overcame his circumstances though without, not without stumbling. He overcame his culture with a bold command to action by God, but Gideon struggles with trust. He's a real person. He is a picture of who we are. And so after all of that that takes place, God has rescued him from it. And as the chapter draws to a close, we're going to see the fleeces of Gideon, and we find that he must overcome his concerns. Now, as you look at 33, it starts with a very bold action. <clears throat> what happens is the Midianites come from Noah, right? Then all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the children of the east were gathered together and went over. In other words, they crossed the Jordan and they got into the Jezreel Valley. But the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon and he blew a trumpet. And I want you to notice, and Abizer, that's his hometown, was gathered after him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, who also was gathered after him. Town to tribe, And then he sent messengers unto Asher and unto Zebulun and unto Naphtali, and they came up to meet him. In other words, 
he has a whole gathering of an army that he said, I'm the least in my father's house who's the least in Manasseh. What can I do? And God in his sovereignty has totally changed the viewpoint, the circumstances. And now he has joining him multiple tribes to do battle. Then Gideon stumbles. And Gideon said unto God, If thou wilt save Israel by my hand, as thou hast said, notice that, I know what you've said, as thou hast said, Behold, I'll put a fleece of wool on the floor, and if the dew be on the fleece only, and it be dry upon all the earth beside, then shall I know that thou wilt save Israel by mine hand, as thou hast said. And it was so, for he rose up early on the morrow, and thrust the fleece together, and wringed the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. In other words, he said to God, do a trick, and God, in his grace and mercy, did. And Gideon said unto God, Let not thine anger be hot against me, and I will speak but this once. Well, that's a lie, because he said that the last time. Let me prove, I pray thee, but this once with the fleece. Let it now be dry only upon the fleece, and upon all the ground let there be dew. In other words, the first trick seems like someone could do it. Let me see if you can do another trick for me. And God did so that night, for it was dry upon the fleece only, and there was dew on all the ground. Now, I want us to understand this because I hear this over and over. People talk about putting a fleece out. You don't put a fleece out. That's sin. Everything that Gideon did in this moment was complete, absolute sin. Gideon's fleece experience represent clear lack of faith and a blatant distrust of God's leading. What happened is this. The marauders come into the valley and the spirit of the Lord fills Gideon. And those words in Hebrew mean this, that the spirit of the Lord clothed himself in Gideon. That's the image that's there that they put on Gideon to talk about how filled he would have been. And he reaches out to his immediate community, as I talked about, and all these tribes. And he gets, as we know from chapter 7, about 32,000 men. Here's the bummer about 32,000. The Midianites and Malachites and the people from the east were coming with 135,000. He has less than a fourth of the people that the enemy has. He's had an amazing response. But what is Gideon looking at? Oof. Can't even count those people with their camels and all their weapons and everything that's going on. And so he does something. <clears throat> he starts looking for a way out. That's what the fleece experience is. He questioned God's will. God didn't stutter when he said, Have not I sent thee when he first called Gideon. Gideon, <clears throat> in verses 36 and 37, repeats what he already knows. He says, As thou hast said. Gideon is not putting fleeces out to find out if God still wants to do what he said. The fleece was not to know God's will. It was a sinful attempt to change it. You put a fleece out, you're putting out a fleece so that you can change what you already know God wants done. Because you don't go fleece God. He's not a God of tricks and gimmicks. Gideon was doing something, and I want you to recognize the arrogance that's coming there. He was dictating to God what must be done for him to be obedient to what he clearly knew. Does God want me to attack the Midianites? Well, he told you he wanted you to. You've acknowledged that he said he did. He, he had you tear down an altar to Baal and cut down the astropoles. He had you draw up a whole army from everyone that's around you. And then at this time, you're like, whoa, but that, there's a lot of people over there. There's 135,000. We've been afraid for seven years. I'd like to see a change. Why doesn't God not do this? I don't think Gideon wanted to see water on the fleece the first night. And he was hoping desperately that the fleece would be wet the next night because he wanted to change God's will. God had given him signs. 
He watched 40 pounds of grain and a lamb get burned up by a rock that was touched, not by the staff, but had meat on it that was touched by a staff to prove that there was no magic staff or some instrument that that was there. (coughs) An army was quickly raised. Gideon said, no one will listen to me. I'm the least in my father's house who's the least in Manasseh. And five, I think five tribes are coming there. Everyone's listening and coming in. God, in his amazing grace, said, I will be your direct presence. He says he filled Gideon (coughs) in a way that the Hebrew says he wrapped himself up in Gideon. God has made perfectly clear to Gideon that he is with Gideon in a way that we can almost not comprehend. What does Gideon want? Another magic trick. Another gimmick. I don't want a real sign, God. I don't want to see 32,000 people. I don't want to see the burning of this food. I don't care that I talk directly to your face, that I know exactly what's going on, that your spirit has so filled me that the Hebrew says, you basically have clothed yourself with me. I would really like a magic trick. We love magic, don't we? A little gimmick or a little trick to make us feel good. But here's the point. He wasn't looking to affirm anything. He was looking to change what he already knew was truth. And God, in his amazing grace and mercy, gives Gideon what he wanted. Again, and I want you to see this. You're going to see it throughout. God extends mercy and grace, mercy and grace to Gideon over and over again. Gideon lied. He broke his own word in his second request. God, if you'll make sure the fleece is wet, I will definitely go. Fleece is wet. Well, you know, sometimes a fleece is wet and the ground's dry. That can't happen, right? You've ever seen that? So let's reverse this, and then I'll know. He knew. He just wanted a way to change what's going on. He was given God's mercy. I put here, what can be learned from this? Overcoming our concern is simple. I'm not saying it's easy, it's simple, and it does not involve a fleece. We must trust and obey God's clear will. And if you're wondering how well it's been articulated, it's been clearly articulated, printed in in, in umpteen languages. You can get one in any store you walk in, it seems like, in the United States. And if you can't, we've got a host of them we can hand to you. You know God's will. How do you overcome your concerns? Trust and obey God's clear will. So are we overcoming our concerns? Are we overcoming our doubts and distrust of God? And I put here, are we overcoming our unfaithfulness? See, what was required of Gideon to become God's instrument, to be a biblical hero, is pertinent to our lives. We should be God's children who are fully equipped to do his work. And by the way, that's all through the New Testament as well that we're supposed to be prepared, that we're supposed to be equipped, that we're supposed to have a pure and undefiled religion. This all weaves through. And to do that, we must overcome our circumstances, see God correctly and see life from his perspective and respond accordingly. What needs to change in us, not what we demand from God. And we need to overcome our culture. Recognize how deeply this sinful world has affected true religion and faith. Be sure you have disengaged completely from any taint of our culture and clearly identified exclusively with the one true God. And that's a lot of words tied in there, but I want to make sure you understand. You identify in Christ exclusively, not identifying Christ and tuck in something else, only him. Overcome your culture and then overcome our concerns to passionately follow God's obvious will instead of stubbornly trying to change it. Fully trust him 
instead of constantly questioning him.